This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we speak with First District Congresswoman Susan Del Bene, who joins us for a wide-ranging discussion about her ongoing work on COVID relief and tech privacy. We get her thoughts on the election and what may be possible in a democratic Washington, D.C. This was recorded live on the evening of Thursday, October 29th. So in this final week before the election, we are checking in with members of our Democratic congressional delegation to uh, get their thoughts about where we have been over the last four years and and really to kind of talk about some of the possibilities that may lie ahead. And so with that, we are delighted to be joined by Congresswoman Susan Del Bene. She has served as representative from Washington's first congressional district since 2012. This is a district that includes the majority of Watkins, Skagit, and Snohomish counties, as well as nearly one-third of King County, running from Redmond to the Canadian border. She is vice chair of the New Democrats Caucus, and she sits on the House Ways and Means Committee. Congresswoman Del Benny, such a pleasure. Thank you for being with us tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So a lot to unpack. Uh, and I think the place that I would like to start is by talking about uh, Monday's confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court and specifically what this may portend for women's rights. You are a member of the Pro-Choice Caucus. And I'm wondering how you and other members are gearing up for potential threats to women's reproductive rights. Well, um, it's a huge concern. Um, the Clearly, this was a top priority for Republicans. Um, they weren't able to work on a relief package, but they, when they wanted to move quickly, they were able to move quickly. Um, and so clearly, the Supreme Court nomination was critical to them um, and really can be devastating um, to a woman's reproductive rights and a woman's right to choose, but also to healthcare overall. Um, their desire to, to really take down the Affordable Care Act um, through legislation, uh, through the court case, California versus Texas, that's going forward now, is also hugely concerning. So this, and the Pro-Choice Caucus, we are working hard um, and will continue to work hard to fight for women's reproductive rights. And I think this is also important for everyone to realize how critical the election is to all this, because it's about members of Congress and the Senate and the president, but also state state representatives are critically important because if there are um, if there are attacks um, legal attacks to the to a woman's right to choose, we might see states playing an even greater role in providing access. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about those state representatives and how critical their voice could be in making sure that people have access to reproductive services. 100% agreed on all that. So much that I want to come back to, especially uh, the election. Uh, And you mentioned that, and and this was in a tweet, uh, you said about the Barrett confirmation that you felt that the Senate should be more focused on COVID relief, which you just said. Um, You said on the House Ways and Means Committee, I'm wondering if we could start this discussion by talking a little bit about some of the work that you've already done in that capacity on COVID relief. So COVID relief is so important and it's heartbreaking that the recent package has not been passed. Um, The CARES Act was the last very large piece of legislation that was passed and signed by the president that um, provided the payments to families, extended unemployment insurance, the Paycheck Protection Program, resources for testing and contact tracing and to support public health. But then 
that passed in April. Um, in May, we knew that we were going to need more resources to help families get through. We passed legislation, the HEROES Act, in May in the House, and that's when Mitch McConnell said, that's too soon, we have to pause. And apparently they're still paused because here we are where a lot of programs have expired, families are still struggling, caseloads are going up, and we still haven't seen um, Republicans come to the table with a with their view, their proposal on what they wanna see for a relief package. Uh, so let me talk about a couple of things I think that are critical that are in there. Um, one, the uh, it's very important that we continue to do whatever we can to keep people on the payroll, keep people on a payroll to help small businesses, but also to help um, folks stay connected with their benefits. And so I have been leading the effort on something called the expansion of the employee retention tax credit. It's a tax credit that was put into place in the CARES Act. Um, but uh, it was fairly small then, and it covered a little bit of wages, but you could only use it or the Paycheck Protection Program. And since the Paycheck Protection Program had more resources, most folks chose to use that. What we're proposing, and as part of the HEROES Act that passed in the House, is an expansion of employee retention tax credit. It would cover up to $36,000 per employee wages for the this calendar year. Um, the it was estimated that this would help keep 60 million Americans connected to their jobs and their benefits at 6 million businesses across the country. Um, we set it up it now so that you could use it in conjunction with the Paycheck Protection Program. So you can't use it to cover the same wages over the same period of time. But if you're done with the Paycheck Protection Program, then you could use the Employee Retention Tax Credit. And one thing that I want to remind folks when we talk about tax credits um, this is a, what we call a refundable tax credit. So we set it up so it would actually be a monthly benefit so to help with cash flow. It's not something you would settle at the end of the year. A business would settle when they do their taxes. It would help them um, have money so that employees would be getting paid right now um, and help those small businesses through. And I bring all that up because another key piece of relief is the expansion of the child tax credit. The child tax credit is a huge investment we make in our children. Um, but we don't do enough. Um, there are many people who don't even qualify for the child tax credit because they don't make enough money to um, to get the full tax credit. So um, this is a piece of legislation that I've been working on prior to the pandemic, but is even more important now. Um, the number of poor people has grown by 8 million since May, according to researchers at Columbia University. And because the child tax credit is the largest federal investment we make in our children, um, this is an area where we have a huge opportunity to make a difference. Right now, one third of all children who are in families who earn too little to get the are, are in families who get to make too little to earn the full credit. So what we do is we increase the the tax credit, make it refundable, so it could be a monthly payment. And by increasing the tax credit um, to three thousand dollars per child, so that um, would be two hundred fifty dollars a month. If you had the full credit or 3,600. So we create a young child tax credit because we know the extra cost of having a very young child, six or younger, that'd be $3,600 or $300 a month. Um, it is estimated that it would help lift 4 million children in poverty out of poverty across the country. Um, so we have legislation called the American Family Act and some pieces of that are in the relief package, mainly to make the child tax credit a monthly payment, um, but not all of the expansion that we propose doing. So this is critically important um, it, because 
It is a huge investment we can make in the future of our children, helping families. So it's important for relief, but it's also just good long-term legislation. Um, and so something else we're fighting for in the relief package, but also beyond that as well. Yeah. And I think this is, uh, unfortunately, for many reasons, a very forward-looking uh, bit of legislation right now. 60 million Americans uh, still connected to their jobs under employee retention tax credit. Four million children lifted out of poverty by the child tax credit. Uh, very, very important. Obviously, um, we know that the HEROES Act is stalled. We know that McConnell has gaveled the Senate to a close till after the election. It's it's a painful question, but I'll just ask, do you, do you foresee any COVID relief package happening during the lame duck session? And if not, is there any way to mitigate the harm to individuals and small businesses in Washington? Well, we absolutely are. I'm going to keep fighting. We have to do everything we can to continue to get relief every day that we don't provide resources. Families are hurting. Small businesses are hurting. Um, so the impact is real. Um, folks not having money to pay the rent or um, we've seen increased need for nutrition programs. Um, families are struggling. So this is critically important. So we have to do everything we can. Now, we will keep fighting for that. And we clearly need the, the Senate to come to the table. Hopefully the election will um, show people where their show senators who that where their values are. There's other things we have to do in the lame duck session like um, keep the government funded. It's only funded till December 11th. So that's another key piece of legislation. So that moves forward. So I do think the election has an impact on what types of packages or programs we could pull together. Even if we could do something that got us through November and December and into the next Congress, where we could do more, especially if we have a good outcome um, on November 3rd, then um, that at least would help families in this very short period. And we could put together more um, long-term relief package in the new Congress. So we'll have to see, um, but we can't just wait. We have to do whatever we can to move legislation as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I do want to circle back and talk about the election. Uh, first about the Trump administration's efforts to hobble the Postal Service. This was over the summer, and you just called for an investigation into why some mail processing equipment in Redmond has not been reconnected despite a court order. What can you tell us about the situation right now? Well, we have a big uh, mail distribution center in Redmond and had been hearing about mail sorting machines. These are machines that can sort up to 36,000 pieces of mail an hour that mail sorting machines are being disassembled and removed. We also have seen, and I know I'm not um, unique here, but I've heard from thousands of constituents about delays in mail um, from from uh, bills coming late so that people are getting late fees when they pay to, for example, a veteran in Redmond who relies on the mail for his insulin from the VA, um, his insulin didn't arrive in time. He had to go into Seattle to the VA to get insulin only to be told that he can only get a small amount to um, tide him over because they'd already sent him his insulin um, in the mail. And so that delay has had incredible impacts. So we go back to these machines. Um, Attorney General Ferguson had brought a case um, to the district court, uh, the U.S. District Court, worried about the impact this would have on the elections um, with delays in mail. The court ordered that those machines needed to be put back. Um, we still have heard concerns. I sent a letter to the Postmaster General and the response was that uh, six machines had been removed at the beginning of August. One had been returned to service. 
but the others have not been returned to service. So um, earlier this week, I asked their attorney general, Bob Ferguson, to investigate because that does not seem like it's in compliance with the court order, also can impact um, the election in terms of mail being delivered on time. And again, it's not just the election, it's all the impacts um, in terms of service for folks who are relying on that mail for critical things like medicines or critical information. So um, the attorney general, our attorney general said that he would um, he would look into this. And so we're um, I, I'm thankful that he's willing to investigate. This is critical and terrible that um, we don't know what's happened. Um, they said they put one machine back, as I said, but they also said to me that other information was confidential and they couldn't um, give me more information on that. So I think it's critical that we move forward and make sure the service is back to where it should be um, because uh, these machines were taken out at a terrible time, um, definitely for elections. Um, and it's terrible to think that there was any you know, purposeful intent to remove them at this time. So an investigation is very important and it's important they follow the court order. And, and we will uh, watch your, your Twitter feed uh, for more information about that as it develops. I, I believe at this point, uh, we are asking people to take their ballots to a drop box now, yes? Many people have, and clearly we've seen that um, throughout the region. Drop boxes have been used um, much more because Folks know with certainty that their ballot has been, once it's been placed in there, that it is given to elections. And I also encourage folks to go check on the status of their ballot. Um, that's one great feature um, that um, we have to be able to go check and see if your ballot's been received, if it's been processed and validated and counted. So um, that's another great thing you can do just to, even if you've mailed it already, to make sure that it's in um, and that uh, it has been val- verified. Help me out with this. I believe it's vote.wa.gov. Any, anybody um, out there? Yes, yes. If I'm getting that wrong, I'll, I'll fix it in post, as they say. Um, so, you know, people are understandably very, very concerned about this election for a number of reasons. People are worried about the things that Trump might try to do, uh, refuse to accept the results if he loses. He's already basically transmitted that that he would probably do that, uh, trying to shut down the counting of mail-in ballots, possibly pushing the election to be decided by uh, the Supreme Court. And I, I'm wondering... How are you and other House Democrats preparing for these potential scenarios? Well, first of all, um, one of the most important things we can do is make sure everyone's voting. So working hard to get out the vote um, because the the scenarios, um, the president doesn't decide if he gets, if he's going to leave the office, you do. And the way you do that is by voting. And if those margins are big, um, it makes it even harder for anyone to dispute that. So getting out the vote across the country, and I know folks are working hard to do that, but um, working through election day, not just two, but all, you know, through the tape, as they say, yep. is critically important. Um, and, um, and if you've already voted, we need to make sure others are voted, others have voted, so remind our friends and family to get out there. Um, but we also uh, there, have gone through various scenarios of making sure that folks are prepared if ballots are challenged. Um, so all the legal challenges that could come up in different states. And I know there's folks across looking at that. And even scenarios where, you know, something would potentially come to the House of Representatives and how that would work. And kind of one thing that's important there as we're looking at candidates, too, is um, in the end, if there is uh, if something did come to the House, each state has a vote, um, not each member of Congress. So Washington would have one vote. California would have one vote. um, Montana would have one vote. So making sure that um, even in some of these races where. Uh, we might have a single member of con- of the House in those states um, making, 
if Democrats win in those areas, that's extra, um, that's extra important. So I know there's been some focus on places like Alaska and Montana um, for those reasons too. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, and I will uh, amend, uh, somebody just piped in saying it's votewad.gov. So, and uh, folks can find that uh, in the show notes. In uh, If you're listening via podcast, you can find that at indivisiblepodcast.org. Uh, you are currently working as a Biden surrogate. I, I wonder what are some of the, first of all, what are some of the things that you are hearing uh, about the campaign here in Washington? And, and what are parts of the platform that you particularly are highlighting? Well, I recently had the chance to do an event with Senator Harris and um, just it's great to see the enthusiasm and excitement. Um, I think everyone wants just strong, strong, responsible leadership, um, folks who are going to make governance a priority and put the people first. Uh, And so that's so critically important and so exciting to see when you talk to folks, um, the opportunity that we have when we elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, they, I talked about the child tax credit. The Biden campaign has adopted the child tax credit plan that I outlined. So that's very exciting because um, it's the full child tax credit, not just the piece that was in the relief package. So expanding the credit um, um, to thir- 3000 per year or to 3600 for young children, um, making 17-year-olds qualify. Right now, they don't qualify um, for the tax credit. Um, I as I started my my um, career as a scientist, um, and so having a, a administrate a president and an administration who actually believe in science and data and want to use that to tackle issues, I'm very excited about that. Here, Whether here. it's looking at healthcare, climate, um, and just agreeing on um, basic information and being honest with the public about that information is so critically important. Even the opportunity we have as the as the um, co-equal branch of government to do oversight, to actually have administrative officials who would actually come and talk to Congress and um, provide information, um, that also would be a huge change. So um, all of those things in terms of just making sure that we have basic sound governance, I think is critical to the public across the board. And I don't think that's a partisan um, statement at all. Um, but also the policies in terms of making sure that we focus on equality and fairness and moving our country forward. So, um, so many things, but again, the most important thing is making sure people are voting. So um, we have a strong result on November 3rd. You're highlighting so many things that we had previously taken for granted and now we're fighting like hell uh, to get back. And I love that you said when uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris Uh, win. And that that is, I think, where everybody's mindset is right now. You've also been working on behalf of several uh, races here in the state. Who are some of the candidates that you're pushing for here uh, back at home? Well, I'm a a co-chair of what they call the frontline program at the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the House Campaign Committee. Um, Frontliners are our most vulnerable uh, House Democrats. In many cases, they're some of our newest ones. Um, One of our frontliners is Dr. Kim Schreier in the 8th District. So um, working closely with her, um, as some of you remember, I ran in the 8th District once upon a time too, and an old person in the 8th District. So I know how critically important it is. She's been a great member of Congress, and so um, she's been working hard. And so I've been doing a lot of work to make sure we support her and some of our other frontliners across the country. 
Um, we have the opportunity to pick up a seat in the third congressional district with his Southwest Washington um, with Carolyn Long. Um, Carolyn also ran last cycle. It had a really strong showing, but um, latest polling shows her in a statistical tie. So this is going to be a close one. And so we're working hard. Um, that's one where we may not have the final results on election day because there'll be a lot of work, but um, hugely important. So I'm going to continue to help get out the vote um, in Southwest Washington as well. And then in the 10th district, we have two Democrats. So we're going to have a Democratic woman in the 10th congressional district, no matter what, which is important. Um, I'm supporting Marilyn Strickland, the former mayor of Tacoma. Um, but there's one where, uh, like I said, I, we're going to have a we're going to have a Democrat there um, to to um, fill Denny Hex seat. Um, and then I've been working on many races across the country and some of our down ballot races right here in Washington, where we have a lot of great state um, candidates for state office um, and uh, state legislative districts, um, some running for reelection, some running for the first time. So all of those, as I talked about choice, et cetera, all of those are also incredibly important races. Well, because we've done uh, town halls with a number of the ones that uh, I think are in your district, would you care to just list some of the legislative races that you're that you're highlighting? Um, so I, you know, go up north um, to the 42nd legislative district. So my district goes up into Whatcom County, um, the 42nd. Um, with Sharon Shoemake and Alicia Rule running up there. Sharon Shoemake is current representative, first Democrat in that newly configured legislative district when it was redrawn um, um, in our last redistricting. Sharon's great. Um, she's she's running for reelection. And then Alicia would be have it's a huge opportunity up there. So um, that's a great opportunity in a in a region that has um, been a tougher region because that's you know, the part of Whatcom County I represent is Whatcom County, basically all of Whatcom County except for Bellingham. So it's, uh, um, you tend to look at the overall um, makeup of the county, um, but um, very blue in Bellingham, um, red in the rest of, more red in the rest of the county. So that's an important legislative district and a couple important candidates and or reelection for Sharon um, happening up there. Yeah, 100% agreed. And uh, I 100% support both of those candidates. I think they're wonderful. You mentioned you were working on some races across the state. Most intriguingly, you were working on some Texas House races. Uh, which ones are you focusing on? Um, so uh, we have a couple of frontliners in the House, in particular, Lizzie Fletcher, who is a new member of Congress from the Houston area. Um, she's one of our frontliners who flipped the seat in 2018 and helped give us the House majority. So um, she is doing a great job. It's an R plus seven. So, you know, on the ratings, R plus means it's if the higher the number, the more Republican it is, R plus seven district. But um, it's she's still most people rate it as a likely Democratic um, seat. So she's been running a strong campaign. It's been an incredibly strong member of Congress and working hard on her reelection. Um, most of you probably know of Wendy Davis because of all that she did and standing up for um, women's reproductive rights um, and running for the Senate. But she's running in Texas 21 um, and uh, she's in a tight race where you have a, a huge opportunity. That district was rated as R plus 10. Um, and uh, kind of gerrymandered um, has part of San Antonio and Austin. She's running a strong race that also, um, I think we have a great opportunity. Gina Ortiz Jones in Texas 23. This is a huge district. It's, um, it's you know, I think my district's big, but this is like, you know, a third of Texas. Um, 
Gina is a fantastic candidate. She also ran last year. Um, this is actually when I was first elected, I, a Democrat came in, um, Pete Gallego in this district and then lost um, after his first term. So Gina has a huge opportunity. This is an open seat because the current member of Congress, Will Hurd, is not running for re-election. So that's an even um, greater opportunity. So it's the southwest edge of the state. Um, and uh, um, and so Gina is doing a great job. And then um, Shri Kulkarni in Texas 22, um, he also ran last cycle. We have a lot of folks who didn't make it through then running again. Um, so this one is uh, next to Wendy, where um, Wendy Davis is running another one. So those are those three, um, Gina, Wendy, and Shri would be pickups um, and, uh, and help extend our majority in the house. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of, kind of movement in Texas, um, democratic movement in Texas. So these are great pickup opportunities. It's really exciting. I mean, in many ways, all eyes are on Texas right now. I'm hearing the word Texas and swing state in the same sentence, which is just, it's a very 2020 sentence, let's say. I wasn't expecting <laughs> that to, to, to be the case. Are you optimistic? Uh, I'll just ask you uh, bluntly, are you optimistic about the chance of uh, Texas possibly uh, turning blue, some of these Senate races going for Democrats and even possibly going for Biden? Well, I think we have great opportunity in these House seats, and these House seats are really, it will be the determiner whether um, we see change across the state. Um, for example, in the Senate race with MJ um, Hagar and, and Senator Cornyn, um, you know, I think these individual races really play because if they turn out the vote and they have a strong showing that has a big impact statewide. So my focus has been on the House races, understandably, and I think we have a great opportunity to pick up seats there. And hopefully there's a big enough movement that we're going to see that across the state. I mean, we're seeing record voter turnout. And um, one of my colleagues in Texas, uh, Mark Vesey, was showing pictures of people um, getting out to vote when when um, voting was uh, just starting in Texas. So um, Texas has seen, I think, over 46% was the last number I heard of ballots returned. So um, people are very motivated. And so the fact that we talk about that as being opportunity really shows the change that we're seeing in the country. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I would like to go back and, and uh, just backtrack a little bit and have you highlight a few more of your legislative achievements this year, because you have a professional background in tech. I would love to talk about a specific bill that you proposed that is of interest to me. It is the Information Transparency and Personal Data Control Act, um, which you say is written in plain English, which uh, is, is quite intriguing to me. So tell us in plain English what, what that would do. So um, privacy is an incredibly important issue. We are behind in putting policy in place with respect to technology across the board. Um, but I'd say probably one of the most fundamental things we can do is make sure that people's most personal information is protected and that people have control of their most personal information. And we've seen that that has not happened. Um, people have seen their information used in ways they never expected, um, that information has been gathered that they never approved. And um, we don't have clear policy on this. So the legislation you're talking about, the Information Transparency and Personal Data Control Act, which just rolls off the tongue, um, really is to set federal policy to put people in control of their data. Um, 
So it, when we say plain English, um, it means that privacy policies have to be written in plain English. Um, most people, all of you, I am sure out there have agreed to something that you haven't been able to read, or even if you tried to read, you couldn't really make sense of. Um, and if you don't agree to the policy, then you don't get to use the service. We want to make sure that it's um, clearly available in plain English so that people can understand that. Um, it requires um, companies to let users opt in so you can decide whether you want, you have, they have to be told what they're going to do with the information, what information they might collect, and then it's your decision to agree to that, to opt in, as opposed to many scenarios we now where you by default agree and then you can go later go opt out. We wanna make sure that it's a proactive agreement or opt in. Um, especially in places where sensitive information is used in ways that people would not have expected. Yeah. Um, it would require companies to um, declare what they, you know, with whom private data may be shared, um, because we know sometimes data has been sold and given away that people can expect. We need an enforcement agency because if we're going to have strong legislation, it doesn't help if there's no one to enforce it. So um, my legislation would make the Federal Trade Commission, the FCC, would um, have that authority. And um, there's also a role. They'd, they'd um, be able to set rules and help um, implement policy. And it would also empower state attorneys general to uh, pursue violations of the legislation. And, um, and it would require companies to go through privacy audits. So we don't wanna just find out after your, your privacy has been violated. There really needs to be an ongoing process where people can validate and, and find out that um, folks are following rules. Um, so this is critically important. We don't have a federal standard. California put a standard in place, as many of you know, but we need to have make sure that people's digital rights, their, their um, rights are protected across the country. And so it's very important that we have uh, legislation here. So working hard to get that through. You know, Allison popped in to ask a question that uh, leads perfectly into what I was going to ask you next. She said, would this be similar to European legislation? And you've said that not having national privacy legislation here on our shores puts us at a disadvantage in international tech policy discussions. Why is that the case? And what opportunities are we missing in your opinion? So um, first of all, if we don't have a domestic policy, it's hard for us to be working internationally to set an international standard. Um, the Europeans are ahead here with GDPR, the general data protection regulation that they put in place. Um, and um, in the absence of a policy here, that does become a default standard. Uh, the, the challenge right now is that in terms of some, because we don't have a privacy standard, there's concern that information may not be protected um, in the United States. And so there was a, a provision put in place called the privacy shield between the EU and the United States. Um, recently, the European Court of Justice uh, invalidated the privacy shield. And um, part of the concern is that there's not a strong, clear policy in the United States. So if we wanna make sure that, um, once again, we want data to move in what data flows to happen because there's um, information that people do wanna share um, to make sure that we have strong policy there. We also need strong data privacy um, legislation so that it's clear to others what, what's, how data is going to be protected, but also so that when we have a seat at the international table, we're helping move that international standard because we know um, the policy that we think is critically important. So not having a domestic standard means we don't really know um, 
what our our statement is internationally, and it has caused an impact recently um, with the EU with respect to the privacy shield that was in place. Well, moving from the international to the very domestic, I want to ask you about something that has come up in a number of town halls uh, that we have done, uh, particularly some in your uh, within your uh, congressional district, some of the legislative districts. This has come up. Uh, you have advocated for universal internet access, and um, we have heard about a number of so-called broadband deserts in your district, which is creating inequity on a number of fronts. Um, how do you feel? And we've talked about this about how you know the the state legislature would work to address this. How do you feel the federal government should be assisting in getting broadband to all Washingtonians? So um, an incredibly critical issue and even more critical during a pandemic. Um, first of all, I remind folks that um, I represent a global technology hub and yet you could be an hour away from where I'm sitting right now um, in, you know, in the, in the, Seattle area and be in a part of my district where there's not rural broadband or even good cell service. Um, and I highlight that because I think people think that um, a lot of the these deserts are really far away and yet these are our neighbors. It's right here in our region. Um, so one thing that we need to do is uh, we need to map. Um, one thing that I, I know it sounds um, simple, but there's not a good map of where there is good broadband availability across the country. And if you're really going to make sure that your their access is everywhere, you want to make sure you're tracking, going back to data, um, tracking and saying, okay, here we've increased it, here it's available here, and you're continuing so you make sure that there's no place untouched. Um, we know that this has exposed disparities in many places. We have kids who can't do online schooling. Um, some of my, some of the school districts in the Eastern parts of my district where folks have had to drive packets to students because they don't have reliable online access. Um, we know this is a huge economic, um, impact on families who can't telework if they don't have, um, access or can't start up businesses and have economic development. So um, so that's why this is so critical. Uh, we can do this. We can put, um, we can make it a priority. It's not going to just be driven by a profit motive from a company because there may not be a lot of money to be made getting out to some of our more rural areas. So that's why I think this is an important public, uh, it needs to be an important public priority. Um, we put as part of legislation, big infrastructure legislation we passed in the House, the Moving Forward Act, um, and in uh, relief packages, um, we put resources. They have helped in some short-term ways um, on the relief package side. And definitely, and when I talk about access, we should remember there are people who might have physical access near them but can't afford access. So that's one where resources are critically important. Um, in some of the other areas, there have been efforts to put in hotspots or other things to expand coverage. But in some part, especially in the mountain areas of my district, um, if you don't have cell service, there's really not a lot to put a hot to build a hotspot. So we have places where um, it's even harder to um, to kind of provide a short term solution. So um, in our infrastructure bill, we invest uh, that we pass in the house. Um, we invest $100 billion to deliver affordable um, high-speed broadband to underserved communities. Um, we have a tax credit for state, local, and tribal governments for the operations and maintenance costs of government-owned broadband systems, because we know, again, in some of these areas, there won't necessarily be a private sector incentive to provide that. 
Um, and we also provided resources in the HEROES Act to help make sure we could expand coverage however possible. The, um, I also just wanna highlight, because um, some people forget, our libraries play a huge role in providing um, connectivity, especially to underserved communities. And um, so I just wanna give them a shout out because they've been doing a lot of work to um, make sure that they're providing access for folks who may not have access at home. Um, even if it's driving into the parking lot and doing some stuff out there, it's not ideal, but it definitely um, helps provide access. And I, I sometimes think people forget what important role that they've played. Yeah, yeah, here, here to that. And you, you talk about the, the Moving Forward Act, the infrastructure bill. Of course, these things are sitting on uh, Mitch McConnell's desk, and we can hope uh, for uh, some movement on those things when there is a change uh, after the election. Uh, a couple audience questions I want to shift into. Uh, Maggie May asks, what will be your priorities in addressing systemic racism? And I, I will uh, tee it up this way. You recently tweeted, racism and discrimination have an undeniable negative effect on the health of black Americans. Recognizing the inequities and real consequences they inflict is the first but far from the only step that we must take to secure justice for everyone in our nation. I wonder if you could expand on that. Yes. Well, first, we have to acknowledge the problem. Um, and I think that's the important uh, part of this time in our country is the, the recognition of the incredible challenges that we face, the recognition that systemic racism has been here for centuries um, and that we this that we can't just talk about, it, we actually have to do something about it. Um, and so, and this extends in many ways. Um, first of all, I'm a was an original co-sponsor of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act when we address police brutality and um, racial profiling and what's been happening in policing and making sure that we have transparency and accountability. That's been very important. We also look at the healthcare disparities that we've seen, especially that have been highlighted by COVID, um, the economic disparities. Um, and so everything from how do we conduct healthcare research and making sure that we have true broad representation so that the any treatments or vaccine, et cetera, that um, are developed, actually we know serve all of our communities and um, and um, have it and will have a positive impact on all of our communities. When we look at economic impact, I talked about the child tax credit. Um, the child tax credit by expanding that, it would um, cut black child poverty in half. We know that um, if you're making too little to receive the child tax credit, then you already are, um, are in a place where you have a less access to resources and services than others do. And so we look at the economic disparities that have existed for so long. We look at the healthcare disparities. Um, and some of those disparities are in place because of systemic racism and, and communities being marginalized. Um, all of these have to be things that we uh, address. I would say it's not just addressing legislation I also think it's incredibly important that we all play a part in addressing that. Um, I will always, um, John Lewis is a hero of mine. I was born in Selma, Alabama and um, had the honor of serving with him on the Ways and Means Committee. You know, he said that if you see something that is not right, not just, not fair, you have a moral obligation to do something about it. And it is incumbent on all of us to speak out against these injustices because the only way we really truly see change is if everyone speaks out and stands up. And, um, and so that's critically important to legislative change, but also to 
the cultural change that we need to see in our communities all across the country. You know, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but I will. It, it seems that we have a, a unique moment in history right now where this is a discussion that is at the forefront of everyone's minds. This, this, uh, I think everybody is starting to become aware of just how pervasive, as you say, uh, racial injustice is, racial in- inequality is. Are you hopeful in any way that possibly over the next, I don't know, five, 10 years that we might actually see real systemic change on this front? I am hopeful um, as long as people use their voices. And everything I know starts off with going back to this election, but this election is critical in terms of how we move forward. It's critical um, if we have a president and administration who agree that this is an issue that has to be a priority. Um, that's why I said recognizing that it's an issue is the very first step. Um, and so that's going to be critically important in terms of the leaders that we have to help move forward. And then we all will play a role. And I do think that the um, the outcry that we've heard from communities all across the country highlights how important this is to the the American public. And so we need to make sure, though, that this this isn't just a moment, that it is a movement and that we see change and sustain change. And a big part of that right now will be making sure that we elect leaders who realize that is important and make it a priority. Here, here, not a moment, but a movement. Um, I will shift over to healthcare here uh, with a question about the ACA. Somebody's very concerned about the ACA being struck down by the new court. The Supreme Court is set to hear the, uh, a case on the ACA on November 10th, and Amy Coney Barrett has already indicated hostility to it in past writings. What, if anything, can be done in your mind for people who may lose their health care due to SCOTUS rulings? Well, um, the first oral arguments are going to be on um, November 10th. Um, so first of all, we need to, our goal should be, and it's it's terrible that this isn't a bipartisan goal. Our goal should be to make sure that everyone in the country has affordable quality health care, period. And we should continue to look at what's working, what's not working, and make sure we're continuing to move towards that goal. Um, Instead, um, most of the time that I've been in Congress, I've seen Republicans just trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act with no proposal, no proposal. I mean, the president still talks about having a proposal and I've never seen his proposal. He's talked about it for years, but he's not the only one. The Republicans have never had a proposal of what they would do. That's why this is so critically important because if the law is struck down, um, I think especially if we win the, the Senate and have the White House, it's gonna be critically important we understand the legal basis that they um, use to strike that down. So as we're crafting legislation and protections that that will um, have standing, have strong standing going forward. Um, the And I, we talk a lot about the, the impact this would have on coverage for pre-existing conditions, but it would have broad impact on you know, taking away Medicaid expansion and millions of people who are covered there. It would reopen the donut hole in Medicare Part D. Um, it would uh, it would mean that essential benefits, which the administration, the current, the Trump administration has already been trying to um, kind of make more challenging essential health benefit coverage, um, take that away. All the things that were put in the Affordable Care Act that are woven into so much of our health care right now. Um, those would have to be taken out. And that would be 
hugely chaotic and disruptive because it's not just one change. It is would be systemic change trying to unwind that. So um, we're going to have to continue. We're, we already are have legislation we've all been working on to continue to strengthen and protect the Affordable Care Act. And we'll continue to move forward there. And then we also need to understand whatever legal basis. I think the case that's being made right now is a weak case. But depending on what the Supreme Court rules, we want to make sure that we are able to respond to that. And we can obviously respond more quickly if we have a House and a Senate and a White House who are willing to make this a priority, the priority that it should be. Absolutely. Yeah. Contrary to what Trump said in the first debate, uh, health care and the AC in particular, absolutely on the ballot. Uh, and uh, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that people are, are I, I hope, are acutely aware of. Um, shifting over to the climate, we have a question from Polly. She asks, how will you move the agenda forward on climate change? You helped pass the Clean Economy Jobs and Innovation Act. I wonder if uh, you could talk a little bit about that and what that would do. So, um, absolutely. First, I would say uh, the reason we, um, or if we're going to address climate, we also have to acknowledge that it exists. Um Again, it's, um, it is, I know it feels unimaginable that we're still having a debate about whether there is a climate crisis. I think the science, the data, um, even personal experience for a lot of people has made it very clear that um, this is a huge threat to humanity, to our country, to our national security, to the globe. Um, sea levels are rising, oceans are becoming more acidic, um, that endangers everyone um, it, there are incredible health impacts to all of this. So, um, so we need to acknowledge it so we can move forward to address it. And so that's one reason why the election, another, yet another reason why the election matters so much. So um, I support the vice president's plan. We actually voted on this already in the House um, to rejoin the Paris Agreement. Um, that is a first step forward um, and important. It was a small step. We need to do so much more. Um, we really need to advance bold climate legislation in the next Congress um, um, because we don't, we're already behind, woefully behind. Um, the bill that you're talking about, the Clean Economy Jobs and Innovation Act, really is to make sure that we start um, putting resources to build that new clean, renewable economy. Um, and I believe that this is actually an economic opportunity for um, for for Washington state, because we have innovation, we have a lot of the resources to really lead in this. Um, the legislation would make in new investments in clean energy, improves the efficiency of homes, schools, businesses, modernizes outdated infrastructure, reduces our carbon footprint, prioritizes environmental justice. When we talk about disparities, um, environmental justice is also critically important. And um, and starts to put in place, um, there's a piece of legislation we um, actually in our infrastructure bill, um, the Moving Forward Act, called the Green Act, which also puts the financial incentives in place to make sure that clean renewable energy um, investments can continue to move forward as, and help them to, to scale. Um, so uh, then I, the, the uh, Biden administration, would obviously help move forward on this and has um, and made this a priority. Um, we just haven't had that environment yet sure. to move. So I do think that it's going to be part of 
a lot of committees work um, on the Ways and Means Committee, obviously looking at what the financial incentives that are in place as we move forward um, is going to be a key role that we'll play. I don't want to ask you too many hardballs about that at this point, because I know that there's a lot that is unknown in terms of cost. But I will just ask you in terms of, you mentioned the, the Green Act, the Clean Economy, Jobs and Innovation Act. And this will obviously depend on, you know, not just taking the Senate, but margins with the Democratic trifecta, with say a, a decent margin in the Senate, in the Senate, do you do you see uh, this bill passing? Specifically, the the Clean Economy, Jobs, and Innovation Act. Um, I think we have a I think we have a great opportunity. I think we had strong support in the Democratic House across the board, and um, so I think that uh, a Senate would could be pretty favorable to that too. Um, we had. Like I said, we had Democrats representing all different types of districts who were supportive of that legislation. So I don't know why there would necessarily be a difference on the Senate side, but that um, the great thing is we have a framework um, already in place uh, that we've started from um, that helps move that conversation forward even faster. And this Congress, we had the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis um, to focus on this, to help put together a report, to help put together legislation like this so that we're even further down the road um, in a new Congress to move quickly. That is music to my ears and, and I, I think to a lot of viewers' ears as well. I, I think people are really on this particular issue hoping we can hit the ground running as much as possible on day one. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, your district is on the Canadian border. And regarding the border closure, you recently tweeted, protecting the public health of Americans and Canadians is crucial, but this one-size-fits-all approach to the border closure continues to have negative impacts. For those of us who aren't familiar, what is the current situation with the border and how is it impacting people in your district? Um, well, uh, first of all, um, in Whatcom County, I want to highlight one particular community that has been greatly impacted, and that's Point Roberts. Um, so for those of you who don't know um, about Point Roberts, Washington, um, I encourage you to look it up on the map um, because Point Roberts is not um, connected to the mainland U.S. You actually go through, if you drove up and drove through the Peace Arch Crossing, you go up um, and then you take a left and you go a little ways and back down again to this little peninsula that is part of the United States. Um, so you cross another border back into Point Roberts. So in particular, um, in the work that we and the conversations we've had um, with folks and with the Canadian government, um, a lot of focus on Point Roberts. These are kids who traditionally have gotten in a school bus to cross the border um, into Canada and back in to go to school in Blaine. Some of the students there actually went to school in Canada and with the restrictions, um, those kids can't go to school in Canada because they would have to go through a 14 day quarantine, which means they could never go home. So part of what I was saying in the tweet too, is we absolutely want to protect public health, but um, we also want to understand that there's unique communities like Point Roberts, where um, they have not had cases there, their ability to get back and forth to access resources is critically important. So can we do something um, to address them in particular? Um, and that's something we've been working on. There is a ferry now running um, from uh, Whatcom County out to Point Roberts to try to help um, with, uh, to help, but it's, it's passenger only. So to help folks get back and forth to appointments, et cetera. But, it's an all day endeavor and that you 
take a couple hours to get out there, um, spend the day and then go back. You don't have all the options that you would do for folks who are thinking about ferries, for example, to the San Juans and other things um, further south. So that's one, but also the commercial impact has been huge. Um, as you know, many of our border communities have relied greatly on Canadians coming to purchase goods in the United States. Um, so that impact has also been great. And making sure that folks who might work on other sides of the border or even family members to connect with each other has been critically important. But um, Point Roberts in particular is uh, one that we've been working hard on because they have such a unique and really challenging situation in this environment. Well, in an ideal world then, and, and this is, well, the, it's a strange way to uh, to phrase the question because this is far from an, from an ideal world, but what sort of border arrangement would you like to see? Well, for a point, Roberts, we've talked about, can you allow folks to drive? Um, they don't, it's 24, about 24 miles. You don't have to get out of your car to drive across. So would they allow folks to be able to drive into what in the rest of Whatcom County to go in to see a doctor or to purchase goods, et cetera, and go back, um, given that we have a limited number of people who live in Point Roberts, maybe that would be a scenario, letting kids go to school um, in Canada and to be able to go back and forth, especially as um, if there aren't cases in Point Roberts, that might be something that would be um, possible. So we proposed various scenarios like that to try to help address that situation. Well, we have covered a lot of ground tonight, and I, I really appreciate um, your uh, your depth of knowledge and, and you're willing to, to, to share uh, so much of your thoughts on, on everything that we've talked about. Before I let you go, I want to get your take on a couple of potential post-election scenarios. Uh, we will save the best one for last, uh, and we'll start, we'll start with this one. If the Democrats win the Senate and keep the House but fail to take the White House, how do you see the role of a Democratic legislative branch keeping Trump in check? Well, um, if we take the Senate, I think we have a good opportunity to play defense against the the worst offenses of this administration. It will still be challenging. Um, having veto-proof majorities would be important um, to be able to counteract any you know attempts to block legislation. Um, but um, it, we've seen what's happened with McConnell um, obstructing so many bills that we passed that never even moved forward. Um, we'd have an incredible opportunity there. Um, so uh, it would part of it would depend on whether or not we had that veto-proof majority that would be so critical to um, to really make sure that legislation got through. Uh, and so we will then uh, save the best for last, as I said. Democrats win the White House, take the Senate, keep the House. And this is more of a philosophical question for you. How do you believe we start to undo the damage that has been done to our body politic writ large? The, the Trump has been a stress test uh, on our institutions, our norms. First of all, are there things that you would codify into law, seeing what we've seen now over the last four years? Absolutely. I mean, and we've even moved some of these bills in the House, the We the People Act, looking at things like ethics reform and um, and election reforms, um, even looking at redistricting or requiring a president or vice presidential candidate to release their tax returns. Um, I mean, the, we, the list could go on, but I do think voting rights um, and those ethics reforms are critically important um, and clarifying that there are places where Congress hasn't acted and um, 
Um, immigration reform is a great example where we need comprehensive immigration reform. And the reason you see have seen executive action really has um, um, and terrible executive actions from this president. Um, Congress needs to act. And um, even when I first came into office in 2012, immigration reform was a top priority then and legislation hasn't moved. So uh, so we need to make sure that we are setting a clear clear guidelines and laws so that there is not this room for interpretation. Um, and we also will look at the places where things have been interpreted in a way that is not consistent with um, congressional intent so that we can provide clarifying legislation to make sure there isn't this ability to kind of misread or twist um, what's happened there, everything from, and, and also things like moving money from one bucket to another, all of those things that you think of that um, this administration has tried to take advantage of. I think we have that opportunity, not only clarify that, but also with the House and the Senate to um, prevent some of those changes from uh, and, and going forward. And clearly with the White House, we can clarify that and really make sure that governance works again, that people can have faith in their institutions to protect our democracy, and, um, you know, if there's one thing that I hear from constituents across the board is they they want governance to work. They want the, the process to work. They want people to have healthy debates and to um, doesn't mean they it, everything's easy, um, but they want to make sure in the end that folks are moving forward and addressing issues that our country's facing um, and making sure that we have strong policies in place and, you know, more recently, nothing's been moving. And so people haven't seen that. So there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done in all, so many areas that we talked about, but also um, some of these reforms to, to address what we've seen happen in these last four years will be incredibly important. I have heard a couple comments, uh, seen a couple comments go by about enforcement. Now I recognize that you are a member of the legislative branch. Uh, you write the laws. Uh, you are not in the business of enforcement. However, we have seen the flouting of uh, of laws. Uh, uh, I mean, but virtually since uh, Donald Trump took office and since he, he swore uh, the oath. And I'm wondering just your thoughts then, again, philosophically, about how we would put into place enforcement mechanisms so that a rogue executive would not uh, be able to do the sorts of things that Trump has done and gotten away with with impunity. Well, let's be clear. We are a co-equal branch of government, and we one of our constitutional obligations is oversight of the executive branch. So, um, and in fact, um, that's what's been so terrible about this Senate and, and even many of my Republican colleagues not being willing to stand up to um, the president or the administration when they have not cooperated, when they have not been honest with the legislative branch and providing information and transparent. Um, and so this, this is critically important. I think we need to make sure that um, Congress is strong, that we make sure that our that we have not given too much to the executive branch, that our oversight role is maintained and strengthened. Um, and that's why I said every, you know, we can look at what needs to be done legislatively, but um, it's been disappointing. I would have predicted that more Republicans would have also stood up to um, this president. You and, and everybody else. Yeah. And I would have been wrong. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, 
you know, I, I, I always intend to end on a good note, and here we are at the end. And so I, I'm inclined to just give you the floor, and because you are going to be the last person that we talk to in the town hall series. We've been doing this since April. You'll essentially get the last word before the election, and I, I would love to just have some closing thoughts from you uh, about what it's going to take to get us through uh, to the most important and through the tape of the most important election of our lifetimes? Um, your vote is your voice. It's everyone's voice. And we've seen how that people are taking it seriously. Um, folks are voting early. Turnout numbers are huge across the country. Um, but we can't let up. We've got to continue to make sure that people are still casting those ballots. Um, they aren't waiting. They're making sure they're in. They're making sure they're validated. So um, we're going to continue to have folks phone banking, um, sign waving, phone banking, doing everything possible. Um, I'm heading up to Whatcom County um, and Skagit County tomorrow um, to help get out the vote. That has to be our focus uh, for everyone over these next few days. And then, um, and then we have a huge opportunity. We have a huge opportunity. Um, November third, my 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 hope is that we our focus is on what we do to um, to address a lot that's happened over these last four years and move us in a better direction, um, where we actually have a government that's working for the people, for all the people, and um, that's a huge responsibility, but a huge opportunity. There's so much we can do. And that really is what I think um, folks across the country are yearning for. I know it's what I'm yearning for and, and I'm excited to participate in my role in that process. So I just wanna thank everyone for being engaged and involved citizens. Um, that's how our democracy is strong and how it works. And for all that you're doing and going to do to help us get at the vote, to help us make sure that people use their voice um, to make a difference for our country. So thank you, and um, and please, everyone, stay safe and stay healthy. I don't know if you can see it, but you are getting a chorus of thank yous in the chat bar, uh, and I will add to that uh, heartily. Uh, Congresswoman Susan Delbeni, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you again to Congresswoman Susan Delpene. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julian Jievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. Special thanks to Louise Pate. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysiers. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.